Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show takes guests in the barrel, behind the scenes with the people who've been there, done that, and seen the results. Revenue Builders covers best practices for scaling and growing your business while sharing the pitfalls to avoid. Great conversation, solid interviews, tangible takeaways to help you succeed. If you enjoy the content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. This show is brought to you by Force Management, where we help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Check out forcemanagement.com for more information. Enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to Revenue Builders Podcast. I'm John Kaplan and I'm really excited to uh, bring you this segment today with my great friend and colleague, John McMahon. Johnny Mack, uh, I have a... Uh, I have a really uh, special guest uh, that I want to introduce you uh, today, uh, uh, excited, an old friend, excited. all right, an old friend and colleague of mine, uh, Mike McSally, who, uh, geez, uh, I think I've known for probably over 15 years. Uh, Mike, I'm going to just do a quick little bio and then, uh, and then we'll, we'll get into you really quick. But uh Mike is recognized an accomplished business leader with uh, deep experience in aligning people operations and technology, spent over 25 years with the largest recruitment services firms in North America. Um, I really love Mike's background and understanding what customers uh, really are uh, doing as it relates to recruitment challenges and business business challenges and mapping them to uh, candidate understanding and challenges. And I think he's probably one of the uh, foremost uh, uh, knowledgeable people uh, on the planet on this topic. So uh, my pleasure to introduce Johnny Mack and Mike McSally. So you guys. Hey Mike, uh, good to have you, Mike. Really Thank looking guys. forward to this because I think recruiting is such a big issue for companies, especially these days where there's like a war for talent. Yeah, thanks, John and John. Look, looking forward to it. It's it's um, it's something that, ironically, uh, I, I I was an accidental recruiter in 1990. Uh, had a job offer from Miller Brewing Company, and I thought I was going to be you know schlepping beer around Manhattan, and and here I am, 30 years later, made a career out of out of recruitment. So looking forward to today. So how did so you decide between Miller Brewing and, and recruiting? Um, you know, it, it is a question I get asked, uh, John Mack, a lot. And it's, it's pretty funny um, because I, I would uh, imagine we're going to talk a lot about how did you end up, you know, going to work in an industry that you didn't know existed. And it really was the experience. Uh, I, I, I was... I was uh, fresh out of college and a good buddy of mine had been working for, at the time, a company called Aerotech for two years. And uh, we bumped into each other at the golf course over 4th of July. And he said, hey, I want you to meet some of the folks. And I said, Steve, not interested. I don't know anything about engineering. I know nothing about recruitment. And he woke me up uh, the Monday after uh, the 4th of July weekend and made me put a suit and tie on. And I met one of the senior execs at an office in New Jersey. Um, 
he was so incredibly excited about really what the company stood for and uh, the two founders that he got me excited about an industry I knew nothing about. 24 hours later, John Mack, I was, I was down in Baltimore interviewing with the two founders and remember driving home six hours thinking, I hope they make me an offer. Wow. And they did. And my dad said, what are you going to do for a living? I said, I, I don't know. But, <laughs> but the, the three people I met with, I need to go to work for these guys because they, they, they've, they've created some excitement uh, around what they do. So that's really how I ended up in the business. That's super exciting. Super exciting. Hey, I read one of your blogs and it said that, let's get to the heart of it. So I read one of your blogs and you said that resumes today are, are judged within six seconds. You know, tell me what you mean by that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, I operate from a position that may or may not be helpful, but, but just like healthcare, um, just like what's going on in DC right now, I, I believe that most of what's done in recruitment is, is broken. Um, and it, it doesn't take, the candidate's uh, background and the candidate's skills, goals, and desires. Uh, and, and it doesn't put that on the forefront. And, and we do that by relying on some methodologies or processes that have just been around since the beginning of time. And uh, so the average person will, will spend about 20 hours putting a resume together, painstakingly trying to figure out what adjectives should I use, what title should I use, et cetera. And the average recruiter, even with all the advancement in technology and machine learning and AI, their eyes are trained to look for two or three certain buzzwords. And they're going to spend about six seconds determining my 30 years of, of domain expertise. And if those buzzwords don't pop out and make it easy for them, they're just going to move right on to the next candidate. So. Right. You know, not only does it, it, it just suck the life out of talented people that are trying to engage with the right employers, uh, employers are missing out on great talent because of this broken six-second step that happens all too often. Yeah. And one of the things that I always talk about is think about is on a resume, you might be able to see some knowledge that the person has. You see some their experiences you might be able to determine some skill set that they have, but one thing you can never figure out is their character. And the character of the person is, is so important. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's funny that you say that. Uh, I'm, I'll go back 10, 12 years of massive amounts of research that we did specifically in the tech space. And, and what CIOs were telling us was, it is becoming just as, if not more important, to have you all in the recruiting business to find people that will fit our culture, match our culture. It's becoming as equally, if not more important than their tech stack. We'll train them, but IT is changing and we're no longer you know, in the basement, so to speak. We're interacting with stakeholders, we're engaging with customers and, and we need those men and women that are gonna align with the culture and the core values. And uh, if they're good and they can you know, think on their feet, we can teach them the tech that they need. So uh, cultural fit is incredibly important. Um, I do and I will if we get them come up with some questions, but I'll make it a point to share with you kind of what I've learned over the years that, that may give you some prediction around cultural fit. 
Well, do you think Mike, that your experience, sorry, Johnny, do you think, I know you want to jump in there, Cap, but you know, no, go ahead, brother. Go ahead. Up some really good topics. So yes, go ahead. No, but what that means, Mike, is do you think that, you know, most companies know specifically what they're looking for in a candidate. So when you've said, when somebody comes to you and say, said, I want to, you know, hire somebody for this role or that role or a bunch of people for one role, and you start to ask questions, do you feel like they've narrowed down specifically what they're looking for? Or do you feel like you always have to draw it out of them and then yeah. you send them a candidate and it may be completely off of their description? You, you would think you and I actually met before this call and you had prepped me for these, these questions. But no, John, you're hitting on an incredibly important topic. And, I, and I've shared this and, and during some consulting gigs in my past life, do I think that 99%, I'm making that number up, quite frankly, but do I think 99% of the men and women that we engage with know what they're looking for? The answer is yes. Do I think they know how to articulate that in a way that shows up on a job description that creates two things, a compelling reason to get a candidate to listen to the opportunity and then a realistic preview of what the heck this person's gonna be doing 50 hours a week. And that's where there's a lot of room for opportunity and a lot of room for improvement. So- Well, then that leads into, if they can't articulate that when they're giving you the, the job as recruiter, then yeah. when you put somebody in front of them, do you think that people are actually capable of interviewing to figure out whether or not those people have those those characteristics, skill set, or knowledge set? Yeah, to, I'm going to answer, I'm going to answer kind of, there's two questions in there. The, the first thing for me uh, is he or she with the best questions is, is always going to set themselves up to succeed uh, when it comes to just about anything, but certainly in, in this topic that we're talking about. Um, so, you know, John Kaplan or John McMahon may have a really good idea of what they're looking for. But the better the recruiter is that's partnered with you at drilling down and asking some follow-up questions, uh, when they can get you to, to, to then look at what you wrote, what you were the author of, and say, John, is this accurate? John and John should go, wow, you did a really great job of getting what was in here, out here, and onto this piece of paper. And then... You know, John, I don't know. I'm sure it's a topic we'll tee up a little bit later is um, I think the men and women that are so pressured and so stressed to find good talent right now, uh, they get involved too late in the game. Most recruitment right now is outsourced to a, a tune of about, you know, if there's seven stages, the first six are outsourced to somebody other than the guy or gal making that decision. And then all too often, we do jump into that recruitment seat and we rely on our gut too much. And um, I'll say this on a public podcast, uh, interviewing is, is flawed just like a lot of things. And, and I've told John Kaplan this, even I could be charming for 30 minutes if I needed a job bad enough. And I'm, I'm not that charming of a fella. So, so we're going to go in there, John, and we're going to be on our best behavior and you know, I think there's an opportunity to educate, especially with, with where the economy and the labor market is right now. 
we're so pressured to fill positions. We've got headcount that we feel, gosh, if I could just get these people in the door. But if we're, if we're dancing with them for those 45 minutes in the interview and we're not truly looking for the right things in there, we know the outcome of that. So I think there's a tremendous opportunity. None of us got in the business to be professional recruiters or professional interviewers. And so there's a balance of what we should be asking and what we should be looking for during those interviews that are really, really predictors of how well they're going to fit onto the team and, and do a good job for us. And let me follow up on that one really quick. Uh, Mike, you were a data guy before there were data guys, like when I met you 15 years ago. And the thing that I was drawn to about your industry was to me, it just looked like a great opportunity for sales skills to come together. The, The customer is looking for qualified candidates and the candidate is looking for a great fit, uh, and great opportunities. And, you actually went deeper for me and with, and with your company, uh, just for the background for the listeners, uh, I was lucky enough to be engaged with uh, Mike's company uh, for years uh, through force management and just really understanding the ins and outs of what they were doing for their customers. Mike, would you just share with us a little bit about like what the research has told you uh, and from two perspectives, because I think it's important because it'll help the, the candidates, but it'll also help the companies. Like you came up with this, this thing called Hearts and Clouds years ago. Yeah. And could you just kind of share with the listeners what, what you meant by that and what you did with it and how you built an entire recruitment process and really yeah. kind of dominated an industry with it? Yeah, John, I think, um, you know, all I did in its simplest form was I, I, took, um, I took years and years and years of, of research, candidate research that we did and customer research with that sat on shelves and we never really operationalized it. And so when I first got involved in it, all I wanted to know were were what are the top value drivers? What are the minimum expectations that a candidate is counting on a recruiter to do? And then I looked at what are the the clouds were, what are they frustrated with? What do they continually experience from any and all recruiters that if we could minimize or, or, or try to avoid, we would certainly start to differentiate ourselves. And I did that with the candidate population. And I can talk you through at a high level some simple things that are not profound, yet the industry wasn't doing. And then I did the same thing with the client population. And so what I found incredibly obvious and profound, yet hard to drive behavior change around, was the, simple, the simplest value driver for a candidate, if I was to call one of you two gentlemen today, or Rachel that's on the phone, what was happening all too often, John, was the recruiter was leading with a job. And what our candidate said is, you don't even take the time to understand my skills, my goals, and my interests, and you lead with a job. And everything after that shows up and feels very transactional to me. And if I'm not right for your job, you, you harry me off the phone. But before you do so, you ask if I know anybody that could fill your job. Yeah. 
Right. <laughs> so, so it was just unbelievably transactional. So in its simplest form, it was McSally, if you just slowed down to understand my skills, goals, and interests, and then you shared multiple job opportunities with me, you would separate yourself from every other recruiter that gets in touch with me. And then, John, we went outside and we said, okay, Mr. Client, Miss Client, what is it that you want from a recruitment firm? And they dumbed it down for us into, we want a proven resource. So we don't want to pay you a fee and we don't want to engage with you. If you continue to scrape the recycled resumes and candidates off of the job boards that we could otherwise have done ourselves without paying a fee. And so, John, I'll take it down a step further on the data world. You know, Tech Systems probably has 50,000 IT consultants working for them on any given week. And the Aerotech side of the house has another 200,000. And when you drill down to the cloud, they said, the thing that frustrates me the most about you as an industry, and we weren't, we weren't, you know, we were lumped into that industry is I very often feel placed and forgotten and you do a horrible job keeping me gainfully employed. You come out of the gates and you love me and you're going to get me this great job. But then when it comes time, when my anxiety is high, 30 days before when I think I'm going to finish my assignment and I've got, you know, I've got a spouse and I've got credit card bills and I've got some student loans and all that stuff. I have to start this whole giant thing all over again. So, John, just those two critical data points is where you saw me build that bridge. I said, wait a minute, we've got tens of thousands of people that finish for us every month. They're proven resources. They've been on site for our clients that kept them gainfully employed and will happily give us an exit reference. Yet we did not have an internal process that brought them to the forefront to all the needs that our clients were looking to fill. So we were reinventing the wheel a heck of a lot more than we needed to. So we'd go out and we'd meet new people that we had never met and never reference checked and had never proven they could do the job they say they could do on their, on their resume. So we made a living my last 10 years at redeploying proven resources and we could sell with greater conviction to our clients hey, the candidate's name is so-and-so. We spent 18 months working over at Bank of America, doing the very job you're looking for. When we read your job description, Miss Client, to the manager that our candidate was reporting to for 18 months, this is what they said about this candidate's ability to do the job. And John, more than anything, what it did for us, it took a commission-driven recruiter's word and, and, and took it right off the table and said, don't take my word for it. Take somebody, a peer of yours in the industry's word for it. And, oh, by the way, why don't you two talk? And you guys talk through what you're looking to do with this position and this team. And so that's just one, one example of where we really started to leverage very simple data and, and then came back inside the organization and we built our delivery business cycle around six very key steps that we're going to add value to both parties. So Before you go into that, 
Before you go into that, let me, because uh, I want you to talk about those steps. Let's just wrap some context around what we're talking about here. So, Mike, you come from a background in IT staffing, which, you know, when I first met you, and it's probably the same today, there were more jobs available in the United States than there were IT workers. There's 0% unemployment. It's got to be pretty close uh, to the same today. And the relevance of what you're talking about in a, <clears throat> in a gig economy is that more, it's going outside of staffing today. There are, there are a lot of people involved in what is now termed as a gig economy. I think the conversation transcends all um, different industries as it relates, whether it's sales or technology, uh, banking and finance, it doesn't matter. It's this, it's this responsibility of a company to understand that there's wants and desires, uh, just like a just like any sales environment. Um, right. I have to qualify this candidate. I also have to sell this candidate. If I'm going to sell this candidate, I got to understand what they want and how I can differentiate myself. And the flip side uh, is is the same. So what I'd also like to dig in is if we can, because we've got listeners on both sides. We got listeners that are have massive amounts of openings and trying to scale. We've got listeners that are thinking about moving into new opportunities and trying to overcome some of these obstacles that, uh, that you're talking about. So um, I'll try to, as we keep going here, try to hone in on like company's responsibility, meet candidate responsibility. And where those two worlds come together, I just think you get great, great outcomes. Good. Well, well, good, John. I think um, you know there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, what what would I say? There's a lot of blame going on right now in in just everything that's happening. Um, I, I've got some research, and I, I operate off under a premise. Uh, there's never been a better time to recruit, at least in my 30 years in 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 the U.S. history, at least the labor market right now. And there's never been a more dangerous time to recruit. And, and the reason that is, is we're just seeing uh, just unbelievable data that says eight out of 10 people that are gainfully employed today are willing to entertain a new opportunity. It's, it's, that's wow. unheard of. And five out of 10 say, I will be in a new role 12 months from today. And Although there's not enough research out there as to why, um, you know, there's some, some of us that spend some time talking around what has the pandemic done to, to people's psyches and who are you going to blame on the pandemic? As far as employment goes, you're going to blame your employer. Maybe they did some things right. Maybe they didn't do some things right. So at least there's a group of us that think, the large percentage of people that are willing to move is because they believe the grass is always greener over there. Uh, the grass is always greener. So John, there is a great time to recruit, but we've got to ask why are they willing to move, right? Why, why do you want to make this move and what happened? But all that being said, um, you know, I think there's just very simple things that, that you said that are important. Right now, I believe the majority of the line managers, let's just talk channel, VPs of channel sales, VPs of global sales, chief revenue officers. Um, right now, they're relying on internal recruitment to, to help them 
at least source candidates and get them, John Mack, to that place where, hey, I should know, I've been the chief revenue officer, I grew up in sales, I should be able to vet somebody for a half hour, 45 minutes. And one of the most successful groups that I've seen uh, internally and then externally is when talent acquisition was owned by the business unit. It was everybody's responsibility that had skin in the game. And, and what I learned at a very early age was you can tell a lot about a person's commitment and just overall excitement to work in an organization or a business unit based on the amount of men and women they're referring to your organization and, and uh, you know, based on the type of per, per person they are referring to us. So while there's this craziness going on, I'll just take, let's just take the VP or the chief revenue officer for a $30 million SaaS firm. He or she has to have 10, 12, 15 people working for them. If they needed to add five or seven or 10 or 12 people this quarter, the natural tendency is to have that guy or gal write a job description, send it electronically to HR, and that whole electronic exchange happens. Whereas I would encourage and coach that chief revenue officer to say, there is nobody that knows what it's going to take to succeed here at this company better than your 11 or 12 direct reports. Right, right. And if we sat them with their LinkedIn profiles up in a conference room and had pizza for an hour, and I said, Johnny Mac, before we recruited you over here, who are the three most accomplished, well-respected guys that sold at the company you came from? And then, John, before you were there, you spent five years over here we could get a list of names to that chief revenue officer in 60 minutes. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And then, and then to take it a step further, I would, as, as force management has kind of coined the term, I would force those men and women to help me participate in my own rescue. I'd say, Hey, I want you to get these two or three people you know, aware that I'm going to be reaching out to them. I want you to tell our story. I want you to get excited, get them excited. So when I do call as the chief revenue officer, they're going to say, hey, Mike, good to hear from you. I was expecting your call. I spent an hour on the phone with Andy, you know, two nights ago. So, John, I don't know if that's, you know, helps. Doesn't a lot of that, Mike, go back to the fact that those hiring managers are waiting until they have an opening before they're going to recruit. So what happens is, they're trying to turn recruiting on and off like a faucet. And, you know, I've always believed that you have to keep it on all the time, even when you don't think you need anyone, right? And just like any good salesperson would do, you build a pipeline of candidates. And I think part of this goes back to what you brought up originally and also why people think they want to leave companies is because during that process, if you're not building a pipeline, you never really get to know the person. You never really get to know their characteristics and what they're really after, what their desires and goals are, because it becomes too mechanical. And if you get to know them because you're constantly building a pipeline and you get to, and you interview them where you interview the person and more along the, the characteristics, and then if companies do a good job of onboarding that person and training that person, and I don't think they're going to leave, right? If I, I, as a manager, know you, I know what drives you, what your goals, aspirations are, 
I've onboarded you. I train you all the time. I'm here to coach you. You're not really leaving for another 5K or 10K. Why would you do that? That's right. John, right now, everybody's hair is on fire. They've got more openings and they've got people leaving. And that's when standards, that's when we start to slip Mm. because we just, gosh, I've got nine openings. Okay, I think this person would be a good fit. Well, that's when they go, like you said earlier, they go on gut, right? So I've had people come into my office. I want to hire Joe. Okay, why do you want to hire Joe? Well, he's really competitive. Why is he competitive? Well, he used to play college football. Okay, but that was like six years ago. Right, right. Is he still competitive now? What skill set does he have, you know? so I'm offended by this conversation, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) That was longer than six years ago, Cap. That was longer than six years, buddy. Exactly. Yes, it was. Exactly. Yeah. So, but so the other yeah. part is, which I think catches a lot of people, when I would ask them questions, I'd say, they bring up a candidate they want to hire, and I'd say, great. What are the risks? And they're like, well, what do you mean, what are the risks? And I said, well, we have a dis- job description, skills, knowledge, characteristics, And certainly the person is an ideal match. They're not the unicorn match to the, to the the job description. So where are the risks? Are we capable of training this person if they don't have the skills? Can we give them the knowledge, you know, if they don't have it, you know, do we, are we going to give them to a manager that can coach them? So I think that's a plays a big part in also making sure that once you get a candidate, you don't lose them. They don't attrit within six months to a year. John, everything you're saying uh, resonates with me. I, I, I subscribe to it. And um, it, it's it's critically important. The, the worst time to hire is when you have needs. It's just awful. What do you think fall- companies should do to differentiate their, their talent process right now? How, if you were going to make one up, let's say I hired you right now, I say, Okay, help me. I'm just like all the other software companies out there. Help me. Give me the top three things I got to do in my talent process to make me differentiated. Yeah, really good. I I think um, the first way I would answer that is I'm not going to ask you, John, a question. But when I ask most people, hey, what is your talent process? What is your recruitment process? Now I'm talking to the line. I'm talking to either the, the VP of apps development, the chief revenue officer, et cetera. They go, hell if I know, I don't know. HR handles all that. Right. So the, the first thing I would do, and I do coach people is you got to own this. You, you have to make this your own and you've got to enlist the men and women in your organization to bring you the talent. Um, they, they, they know, you know, I always used to say this and it's, I'm dating myself, but you know, good helicopter pilots, no good helicopter pilots, right? It's no different in software sales. It's no different in finance. It's no different in technology. So the first thing I would say is you have to own it. The second thing I say that is incredibly important. And let's, let me just stay on that. And the reason that I think you have to own it, you are the hiring manager. And the, your team is defined by how well you recruit. So if you recruit great, you're going to have a great team and you're going to look good. You hire a bad team, I don't care how good you are as a leader, you're going nowhere. You, you, so you that's why it. you have to own it. So, John, part of what I was saying earlier, kind of the blame game, it's just life. It's just where we are, right? But the reality is 
line, I consider line, people that are relying on HR to hire people, right? Lines blaming HR, HR is blaming the generation. Nobody wants to work hard. I mean, it's this, what are these millennials going to do? Well, our parents have been saying the same thing for, for 200 years. What's, right. what's this generation coming to? What's this generation coming to? And the reality and the research from the, the foremost leading experts, you know, Gallup poll and Sirota surveys saying not much has changed. Not much has changed in what a, a young man or woman entering the workforce is looking for in a company and their career. There's some nuances, but at the end of the day, when you break it down to, we are all the same people and we're all looking for predominantly the same thing. So, so anyway, we've got we've to rid the blame game and we've got to take ownership at the business unit level and say, okay, what are we going to rely on HR to do in our internal recruitment team? And what are we going to own? And, and so I think that's the most important thing that, that we can do. The other thing that research showed to me, John, is if I refer someone to my team, if you're my boss and you say, McSally, you know, we've got, you know, 12 openings and I mean, we could grow through the roof this quarter, but we've got to find the right people, the best people. My research shows that when I bring someone in that I referred to that I'd known in the past life, I automatically, intrinsically feel obligated to make sure they succeed. Right. No doubt. And so, you know, a stranger coming on to the team. Yes. And also, this is such an important point for me because I see companies just mess this up. If you get an employee that feels strong enough, who knows your culture, who knows the job, and they recommend a candidate, even if that candidate is not the right fit, the follow-up has to be flawless. The interaction has to be professional. What I see happening all the time, and I go into companies and I'm like, hey, why aren't you helping with all these openings? Like I go and I test these theories that Mike has taught me and John has taught me from PTC. I go into the troops and I ask questions. And the number one answer I get is, the last time I referred somebody, they got treated like crap or they, and it, it's just mind boggling to me. In, in companies, when you talk about owning it, I think leadership really needs to really needs to own this part of it. Somebody feels strongly enough to recommend someone to this company. They get treated, I guess I would say not like anybody else, but they get treated with extreme professionalism and incredible follow-up, Mike, because the data, I think, on the follow-up, just sucks and so you have friends or you have colleagues or you have you know blue chip people that you just want them to come to your company and the experience is bad and it's over nobody will do it again yeah john i i i you know there's a loose term it's not loose but it's it's loosely defined the candidate experience like what does that mean and where does it start and does it ever really end and who's responsible throughout that journey for that candidate's experience? And, you know, the candidate experience starts, if I apply to a job at force management, that, that's, that's my first interaction with force management. Whether they respond to me or don't respond to me, whether they ding me or don't ding me, you know, whether I get on the phone with an internal recruiter 
that asks me generic questions, whether I sit in an interview in front of you and you're distracted, not saying you would be because you're looking at your phone and you're responding to texts and you're checking emails, that all makes up. And, and I think when you utilize your internal advocates, people that love working in your organization, the candidate is and, and allows some of those things that are going to happen they allow them to happen and not take them personally. But if you have somebody from the outside that says, hey, it took them three days to get back to me. They said they were going to follow up in four days for my phone screen. The phone screen got, re you know, uh, changed three or four times. And I don't have somebody on the inside. That starts to form an impression like, okay, what happens if I do get this job when I get yeah, it? Yeah, there's no doubt. I've had company people tell me, look, Based upon even after they sit, you tell them they have the job, they're watching how long it takes you to get the offer letter out, and whether or not you follow up with them, because they're saying, I'm coming from a bureaucratic company where there's lots of crazy process. Nobody left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. Now you're selling me on the fact that this is a high growth company. It's streamlined. And then it takes you guys X amount of days to generate an offer letter. Uh, I'm not so sure that Johnny Mac actually are streaming. Johnny Mac, so I hope people, leaders are listening to this right now and getting a massive stomach ache because this is also where leadership really needs to look at this as like a pipeline. Like there's no way you would not pay attention to the velocity of your pipeline the thing that's amazing to me is when i ask people the pipeline if you have really good candidates in there yes. you might, because you know the description you might move those people forward yes right? and that, let's stay on in this in the market it's got to be compressed it can't be a you know an interview process that right. goes on for nine or ten weeks the people are yeah. like i'm out other people cap, are coming hang, in and hang doing on it to your, hang on to your point cap but johnny mac you're so right like Every single person we are trying to recruit to a company today has 30 opportunities a month, 30. Yeah. The good news is most recruiters can't articulate a good, compelling story to get them to even listen. Right. But the reality is if they're any good, there's three or four or five other people courting them. And then John McMahon, like you said, is – no one's sending a press release and say, stop calling McSally because force management's going to make him an offer in the next three weeks. <laughs> right. They are going to continue to court the daylights out of that candidate. Then you're going to go back to your employer and you're going to say, hey, bittersweet, but I'm leaving. And I already know here comes the counteroffer. Right. So all those things need to be taken into consideration and do I think HR has the opportunity to do that? The answer is no, because no, they've got, they've got, but it's up to the hiring people. manager, That's the hiring right. manager, should, openings. the hiring manager should know when that candidate's going to quit. So if you told me you're going to quit nine o'clock on Friday, guess when I'm calling you, I'm That's calling right. you Thursday night to remind you of all the reasons you gave me as to why you left and all the reasons you want to come to my company. That's and it. then when I guess when I'm calling you next, I'm calling you, you're going into the meeting at nine to tell your boss, I'm calling you at 8.30 in the morning to remind you again, because I know that to your point, that counter offer is coming and the we love you spiel is going to come, right? So that's right. But what this makes up to Mike is that, and what you're trying to say is 
you got to own the entire process as the hiring manager from pipeline to until the candidate shows up at your door. It, the bigger you get, it gets harder and harder and harder. But I was thinking about this. I mean, I met with, they were still a $35 million company when I met them. I met with the two founders. There was nothing more important in their day than meeting with me at, you know, a referral, but be all that be as it may, they took probably two hours and another hour and a half to meet with a, a person that was referred to them. They were that maniacal around who they were allowing to come into their organization. Now, over time, it, it got harder and harder and harder to do that, but they, well, just for another time, we put Johnny Cap on pause. They built in accountability and responsibility for who you were bringing into your office. So we can talk a little bit more about that. Well, I think that that's the point I actually was making here. And I, cause what I really want people, I'm hoping people listen to these podcasts and get a stomach ache. And that means we're adding value and the stomach ache that, that I get when I listen to this is just the leadership aspects of this and the most successful organizations I've seen are the ones that the leaders own it. I was telling uh, Johnny Mack before we got on this is that I remember being a young leader and being lucky enough to read um, uh, Welch's book straight from the gut. And that goes way, way back. But like he dedicated um, a huge part of that book. And there's a specific chapter in there called the people factory where he broke it down. This is the CEO at the time of the most successful uh, company on the planet at the time. And he broke it down and owned the accountability uh, and called it the people factory. And what I took out of that is uh, when I became a young sales manager is you always have to be recruiting. And I remember somebody telling me one time, it was like, Hey, are you recruiting? And I said, well, I don't have any openings. And, and my boss looked at me and my boss looked at me and he said, you always have openings. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And he introduced me to the rule of three, which I've never forgotten. The rule of three is somebody's going to get promoted. We're a growing organization. If you're not promoting people, we're dying. Yep. So somebody's going to get promoted. Whether you want to promote them or not, McMahon used to take people off my team all the time. And all of a sudden I had an opening. <laughs> if you don't uh, want to so, promote them, I'll promote them. That's right. Somebody's going to get promoted somebody's probably should get demoted or exit the business or, right. you know, with dignity and respect, but you know, that's the, that's the way it works. There's the, you know, bottom 10% or what have you. And this one really blew me away because it's been so um, amazing how it's come and caught me by surprise. The last one is somebody's going to surprise you. And then when I dig into it, like, was I really surprised? But which means is I always have three openings. So who's ever listening to this right now, you always have three openings that you're recruiting for. Somebody's going to get promoted. Somebody's going to get demoted or reassigned or what have you. And somebody's going to surprise you. And that lesson for me was just a huge one and uh, hugely valuable. So Honey, if you're listening have... to this right now and you don't think you have any openings, you're wrong. Johnny, that happened to me. I was really close to a sales rep and made a bunch of sales calls with him all the time. We always talked about sports and stuff. 
I knew that his father was a football coach. I knew that his brother was a football coach. I know that he played in college and then into, into the pros. And, but I never thought he would leave. And one day yeah. he walks in my office and says, I'm leaving. I'm like, what are you talking about? And I was close to him. You know, we'd go out to dinner and all that stuff. And he goes, I got an offer from a pro football team. I'm going to go be a coach. And I was like, holy smokes, that's a shocker, you know? Yes. And he was a great, great rep. So, yes, you will be surprised, even by people you think you're closest to. We've surprised people. Yeah. Think about it. The, the organizations where we've transitioned from, and we've, we've always, this has always happened. So, uh, that's a great example, Johnny. And, and, Mike, I know you have the same examples. If anybody's listening out there and didn't think this topic was relevant, it's extremely relevant because you really have three openings that you're recruiting for and you got to, you got to own it every day. It's got to be a part of your fabric. So Mike, being that, you know, most of these companies have turned over recruiting to HR and the hiring manager comes in last is, is what you've been talking about as a candidate. How do I, maybe I do want to still work for that hiring manager. Maybe I still want to work for this company, but there's a whole bunch of bureaucracy I need to get through first. How do I differentiate myself in this bureaucratic process to make sure that I get that opportunity great. to get myself in front of the hiring manager? Gotcha. Great, great, great point. And, and there's a couple things that come to mind, but maybe I'll just share. Uh, I spent the last year um, helping a buddy, uh, he's become a buddy, but, but anyway, helping a guy grow a relatively small software company, SaaS company. He was building custom products. Uh, Naval Academy grad, spent 10 years at NSA, said, I, it's not what I want to do. I want to build custom software for startup companies. And so long story short, John, I went in, we assessed the team. Uh, you know, who's good, who's not good, who's incredibly technical, but can't speak to the client, all that good stuff. And we landed some business really, really quickly. And this was just last year, 2021. And you can't find a software engineer to save our lives that's not working. And so my answer was, okay, um, what do I know about software engineers? What do I know that they want to hear? What story do we have to tell and then, John, I had the luxury, not that everybody, but I had the luxury of myself as an interim COO, I made all the recruiting calls. So they heard from uh, uh, someone with a perceived authority skin in the game. The second thing, and I asked all, all 10 people that we hired, why did you take the job with a company called ByteLine that you never heard of before that was four million in revenue on its way to going to seven. Why did you join us? And they said, first and foremost, I never engaged with somebody that was more transparent in a job interview than, than me. Now, I don't wear that as a badge of courage, but I've spent a lifetime trying to talk people out of the job. That's ah, my job. That right, is my so job. hey, that's important. Can you go a little deeper into that? Yeah, I can. Very important. I can. And, and, and I, I want to, I don't want to air dirty laundry, but if you, if you look at a, a company that I spent a lot of time with, that I love, that I owe a lot of my success to, and I have lifelong friends in, um, 
the interview would be, we work hard, we play hard, we're really good culture, we love one another, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> then day one, the candidate, the new hire would show up and we would say, you see that telephone? Okay, you're going to be on it 50 hours a week. Everyone you call is gainfully employed. By the way, they don't want to hear from recruiters because they get inundated with jobs that are irrelevant. And they're going to try to rush you off the phone as quickly as humanly possible. And so what's going to happen to you is you're going to hide behind your keyboard and send these nice messages out via email and you're going to quit in six months. Yeah. So I turned that on its ear, John, at a very early age. And I just said, real, I said, look, here's the end of the day. What is your mom and dad? What do they do for a living? Oh, so, so they, they're full-time employees. They're gainfully employed. We're calling people that work from contract to contract, right? This is what's important to them. This is where they're most vulnerable in their life cycle. The industry as a whole has a bad name. This is what we need to do to differentiate them. You've got about 60 seconds to create interest and urgency when you get them on the phone. And here's the script that will do that. And, and if you're really resilient and you can actually, you know, get motivated by being hung up on and being told you'll never fill this position, then you can have a really successful career in this industry. And so I spent time scaring them, not intentionally, but trying to do them and me a favor. I didn't want somebody to come on and go, everyone's young. Wow, everyone's attractive and in good shape. Wait, you guys have a dodgeball team? Oh, wait, he owns the Ravens? Because none of that mattered 60 hours a week during the job. Right. And, right. and so that's what I mean by I spent a, a living trying to talk people out of the job. So that last year, every software engineer I called was gainfully employed. Some of them were at Travelers, and they were a number. And they were one of 4,000 people in the IT shop at Travelers. They were working on one product for the last two years, hoping that it eventually goes live, right? And so I know that about software engineers. So I'd say, look, currently we have 14 current clients. We're building 14 different products. I know you say you want to work on multiple products, but as soon as you do, you're going to say, gosh, I wish I was just working on one. So John, very transparent. And I guess it was second nature to me. I didn't realize I was doing it, but I wanted to ask, why'd you join ByteLine? And they said, McSally, I've never had somebody that was that transparent, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And quite frankly, Mike, it was refreshing. So here I was trying to scare most of them off, which I scared plenty off, but the 10 that we got were the right 10. Yeah. I, gotta I like that. I got to make an apology now. So when I hired Cap, I forgot to tell him that he's going to be really stressed out every 90 days. So, Cap, I'm, I'm really sorry, brother. You have a hell of a lot more to apologize than for that, brother. But we, we don't have enough time in this podcast. Hey, Mike, you know, you know what he did on our interview? We were at a Denny's, and he looked out the window while I was talking, acting uninterested. That's what he did. He was looking for the next interview. Come on, again, right. hurry this up. I got another guy coming. I didn't even I get thinking, that six seconds you were talking about. He was telling me what a hot shot ex-football player he was, and I was just thinking, of, mm, all right, I don't know what this guy's <laughs> really interested in. <laughs> what does this hey, have to do with selling software? Yeah, exactly. Hey, Johnny, before this gets too more embarrassing for me, let me just follow up on your – the last thing I want to uh, – maybe we kind of wrap up around this area is um, – Let's give some spirit to some candidates because um, 
let's flip it a little bit. I think we've done a great job of talking about hopefully people are taken away. You got to own it. It's a responsibility. It's got to be a company initiative. It's got to be a, a leader initiative. And that initiative has to, in, in, you know, go to the bones of the individuals of the, the people that are actually you doing own the hiring. Every step of the process. Every That's step. right. Now, from a candidate perspective, Mike, I've always thought as a candidate, I always thought the, you know, the whole process, it's like 50-50 on both sides. If I'm the hiring manager, 50% of what I'm doing is qualifying, and the other 50% I'm doing is inspiring, selling, and trying to bring that person on board. If they're not qualified, I treat them with dignity and respect. I don't, don't, you know, I move them on and, and give them something positive out of that experience. The candidate has the same thought process and I just wanted to get some words of wisdom for you, for people that are thinking about that. John talked about it. You know, in your blog, you talked about people are looking at resumes for six seconds. They're, you know, and in a time in your, your, your blog post that we'll also post them in the show notes. I loved your blog post talking about in the time when we're being taught, you know, to be humble and, you know, understated and, you know, be professional. And if somebody's looking for the, at the resume for six minutes or six seconds, um, give us some words of wisdom for people that are transitioning and looking for that. How do you stand out as a candidate in today's environment? Yeah. Um, And so John, there's a book that's written and it's old now. It's probably 15 years old. It says, if you want to land your next job, don't send your resume. Right. And some some more research that I think is really, really important. And and I must get six to eight calls a week uh, from Joe Kaplan saying, hey, can you help so and so out? He's transitioning out of uh, Canon. Hey, Mike, my daughter. Hey, Mike, I'm leaving. You know, and and a lot of these people aren't tech people. They're in sales. So the most recent research, John, is uh, both John's is is what's called you're going to find your next job through a loose connection. And that plays so well into what we spoke about all day here. I want a proven resource as the hiring manager, and I'm more likely to trust a proven resource on my inside team to recommend that. Same thing as the advice I give to to the men and women that are starting their job search. The reality is if you send 100 a hundred CVs out to job postings, you're going to hear from less than 10% of the people you sent your resume to. Mm. Okay. So what I encourage people to do is if you want to stand out, first thing is find somebody on the inside of that organization that knows your skills and past performance and see if they'd be willing to at least talk to people inside the organization that are hiring for that skill set. And John, we had research, and this is something very near and dear to my heart. References, when you use the word references to a candidate, it says, you don't trust me. And, and so what we did in some value messaging is we said, look, where have you done incredibly great work? Who is willing to brag about your ability and that work that you did And our research showed at a minimum, you're going to get put on top of the other 69 applicants, right? The average opening is receiving 70 applicants, right? Which more importantly, when those references are provided and they are truly references of men and women you reported to and worked for or clients you delivered for, not your peers, 
that differentiates you head and shoulders. Mm. So, John, what the recruiting business does is the references are done very, very, very late in the process. And consciously or subconsciously, I'm not really doing those references to determine whether this candidate can do the job or not. If, if, if I was, I would have done it very, very early on in the process, John. Right now, I've sent them to my internal manager. They've gone through 93 interviews. They passed their drug and background check and their, their credit check and all that stuff. God forbid I find something wrong at the 11th hour. I'm going to have to start that all over again. So the advice I give to anybody that's looking for a job is if you're looking at a job posting, it's already too late. They've already got 70 applicants and you're going to get lost in the shuffle. So use your connections, use LinkedIn to see who you know that now is working at that organization that would be your internal advocate. And again, what you're doing, going back to the hearts and the clouds, is you're going to a guy like John Kaplan or John McMahon that has six or seven or eight or openings, and they've got a stack of resumes they got to go through, and they go, John and John, I worked with a guy by the name of so-and-so. We spent five years over at XYZ. He became aware of a job opening. He's a guy that I would stake my reputation on. I know he would come in and do a great job. You've just done the hiring manager a huge favor. So what I encourage the job seekers to do, your resume is not going to make you stand out. It's doing something uniquely different, right? Um, and very quickly, LinkedIn is, is an incredible tool. I could find out who John Kaplan has worked with in a past life. And if I ever worked in and around that person, could I have that person call John Kaplan? So it, it, just in this example, if I work for Johnny Mac for, for three years and I no longer work with him or he's retired and I know he's got a connection to Kaplan and I call John Mack and I say, John, hey, it's me. Hey, how you doing? We catch up. We go through the small talk. Look, this is what's going on. Would you be willing, right? If all of a sudden John Kaplan receives a call from John McMahon about a candidate, John. game's over. Yeah. Game's over. I'm getting an interview. So – what we need to start doing is leveraging as candidates, leveraging our loose connections that can speak on our behalf and not get us, you know, lost in that black hole of the resume submittal. Yeah. So, John, there's, there's really more to it, but that's, that's in a nutshell what I share with everybody. That's really Great good advice. advice, Mike. Thank you so much. We want to wrap up with some rapid fire questions. Oh, okay. All right. Are you ready? Fire away, man. Let's see how I do. Favorite meal? Chicken parm. Chicken parm. Lot cheese, lots of cheese and sauce? Lots of cheese, lots of good, lots of good sauce, yeah. A little pasta on the side? You got or it. Or veggies. Pasta or no, veggies? No, I, I, I'm not eating a lot of carbs right now, so unfortunately I'll force the broccoli down, but yes. You can send them my way. You got to get your greens. I've been for, right. telling Kaplan he's got to get his greens. Send the pasta my way. Don't be afraid. <laughs> Favorite movie? Favorite movie. The only movie I've ever paid to go see twice at the cinema was Beverly Hills Cop. All Beverly right. Hills Cop, Eddie Murphy. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah. All right. Fa besides recess, favorite subject in school? Uh, history. History. History, yeah. I, really? uh, I, 
What type yeah, of history? it was. I wish, like? I wish I wasn't a math guy, which is ironic because John talked about how I do love data. At the time, algebra and calculus just scared the daylights out of me. And I, I, I didn't want to do anything in that class. But history, I could pay attention to, I could, I could digest, and I could actually get up in front of the classroom and regurgitate. So the only reason I ever made a living and got through college was oral presentation. So history. Are you still doing, reading a lot of books on history? So what I do. Is, I'm, a, like I'm a documentary nut. I, I love, I, I, I will watch any and every doc. I just recently watched the one on David Geffen, which I know nothing about show business, but was okay. just fascinated at what a guy that had no prior experience did when he showed up in Hollywood. It was amazing. All right. right. Name an item that's worth spending extra money on. A putter. I knew he was going to, I knew that. Hey. Wow. Why? Hey, why why will extra money buy you? Permission to share some stuff? Just, I don't know. Can you get that? Are you getting Holy smokes. Putter collection. So, yeah, Johnny Mac, I think most people spend, they'll, they'll buy the $700 new carbon driver from TaylorMade, and they'll hit it 12 times around, but they're going to have that putter in their hand 30, 30 times, 36 times. You need a great putter that you're in love with. And if you weren't a recruiter in your career, what other career do you wish or hoped or dreamed you would have been or could have been? And it can't be the Miller Brewing thing, right? Yeah, no, I, I, I don't think I would, I would have succeeded. I, I would not be here today if I sold beer as my first track record. But um, I, I probably would go into teaching. Teaching? Um, probably, yeah. yeah, probably business school, higher education. I think, um, I think there's a tremendous opportunity missed and a tremendous opportunity to get the, the young men and women, and I've got two that are going to be entering the work world, my two oldest, uh, we're not prepared. We're not preparing them um, just to yeah. just to deal with emotional what goes on, how to get mad, but still get your point across and 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 actually behave like a gentleman. Um, what's important when it comes to financing and not over leveraging right. yourself, especially the financing part, just personal finance. Even you yeah. got it. So wait, let me make sure I heard this right. You're going you're going to teach people how to not get mad and not offend people. I've got, a a I've got a lot of practice doing it wrong, Johnny. So, so I can't, pra- I can't take my own, I can't take my own advice and put it into place. I might as well give it to others and hopefully they can do it. Dude, well, the class is- Oh, go yeah. ahead, John. I was going to say the class is going to be called take my advice. I'm not using it. And that's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly right. Well, Mike McSally, I'd heard a lot of things about you from uh, Johnny Cap, and I'm really, really glad that you went and spent some time with us. And, you know, maybe we could do this again sometime. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, guys. It was a pleasure, as always. Johnny, good seeing you. And, and John McMahon, pleasure to meet you. And, and hopefully we'll have some follow-up conversations. You too, right. brother. You were awesome. Thanks for coming on. And, and to all of you listening, thanks for listening to Revenue Builders. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.